0: Starby, welcome back to what I think is gonna be part five of this Bulklands F-15E special. How you doing?
1: I'm doing fine. I'm glad to be back. It's kind of you know, even if it's weird to be batting cleanup with a series of unfortunate errors, that's fighter aviation, and we'll see how it works out. I'll try and make it funny and I'll I'll try to highlight other people's errors and not mine.
0: Well, I think it shows dedication to the course, doesn't it? Actually, on both our parts that we, uh, so, so there are a couple of bits on from part four that we wanted to uh, re-record, and I know you've got a correction to make around a couple of names. Um, but also, we would had some, through parts one, two, and three going out, we would had some questions from the audience that you're going to address um, on this part five. So it's kind of an interactive episode in that sense.
1: It is, and and one thing for the audience that the audience probably doesn't realize is that we a don't script these, and b Steve has no idea what I'm going to do at any given moment, and has to kind of ride along. So that's in this case, that's just the outcome. Is we've got a we've got a bad cleanup at the end of the episode, and it turns out there's enough cleaning up to have another episode.
0: <laughs> so one thing I one thing I do know is that. Um somebody shot a name nine were in that formation and you didn't tell me the story in the in the first four parts so so why don't you start with that i
1: forgot about it so let me bat my first bit of cleanup and that is that i have referred to paul hibbard who was the pilot that was with me on my nuclear strike cert as as hubbard it's hibbard so let's get that right and secondly for reasons i don't understand and this is not going to be a dave dodger story Dave Dodge is the dude's name. His call sign is Dodger. I keep referring to him as Dave Dodger like I've got some kind of malfunctioning brain cell. Good pilot, good combat pilot, good dude, funny, dry sense of humor. Sorry to disrespect you, Dodger. I'm probably going to get it wrong in this episode, too, because that brain cell is just uncorrectable. Now, speaking of brain cells that are uncorrectable... Somebody brought up, you know, one of the audience members is actually a Strike Eagle pilot. So Hacker brought up the AIM-9 episode. And I go, oh, I forgot to tell Steve about the AIM-9 episode. So there are a couple historical releases of the AIM-9 missile that were accidental or inadvertent. You know, so we use two terms for this. Unintentional uh, means that you didn't plan... I may have gotten this backwards, but I'm going to stick with it. Unintentional means that something just happened, and inadvertent means that you did something to make it happen, but you didn't really mean to. So it's like saying the f word in front of your mom at Thanksgiving dinner. You actually did do it, but you didn't mean to. So in this case, I'm flying with Rusty, Ugly, uh, and on the the uh, in the other airplane are Rock and Rooster. So UD's from blue, the rest of the three of us are from red, and we're hitting some kind of target with GBU-10s, and I honestly don't remember what it was, but it wasn't a heavily defended area, and it didn't require more than a two-ship. I kind of suspect that it was uh, an airfield target uh, late in the war. And so we're cruising along, and the weather is bad, and we're by ourselves, and we're flying a visual formation, and it's daytime, and the formation kind of gets dicked up as we turn in our final heading to the airplane, uh, to the target rather. And the way it all works out is that number two is in front of us. So two's up here, we're back here, and UG decides we're just going to do the run in and we can fix it after we drop the weapons. Okay? Because the position is has been too far screwed up putting Rock and Rooster in front of us that we're going to have to spin in order to fix it, and we're not going to spin. So uh, we're going to roll in on the target. and But that that just means that they're going to roll in on their aim point first. Okay, roll in on their aim point first. The weather's crappy. We're not going to laze. I'm not worried about uh, uh, weapons effects blocking my laser, so let's just execute. And so we're cruising along, cruising along, cruising along. Attack, run, get close. Ugh! rolls us upside down pulls down to a 20 degree dive and right about now we get a radio call saying lead two just shot name nine Ug rolls out gets ready to pickle not a word from the front seat so i get on the radio and i just say one what can i say what can you say to two just shot name nine because I know there wasn't a target out there. And so I just say one and we complete the delivery and we come back up and, you know, we get visual again and we rejoin and we start heading out and I start coaching, you know, what's the deal? Is this an inadvertent launch? Do we need to have the aircraft impounded? I'm trying to give him the list of possible excuses for this. It's like, no, 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 I just did it. I I cannot help you, dude. (laughs) What had happened? And this is strike Eagle hotas is that Rock had come down on the pickle button in his air-to-ground master mode to release the weapons. Holds the pickle button down, the weapons come off, thumb comes off the pickle button. I should probably show my thumb. Thumb. The pickle button here is notional because I don't have one spare. He then, with his left hand... Thumbs aft to auto guns, which is what you do when you're coming in a turn off target. So as you turn off the target, you are scanning, your radar is scanning inside the turn for that bandit that was outside your radar search volume. So it's standard. You go back to auto guns and then you go mid position on the thumb switch on the throttles, which is medium range missile, which selects, or sorry, short range missile, SRM, which selects your sidewinder. And the all normal. That's exactly how you do it. Because when you go to guns, it automatically does the radar mode switch, and then you go back to SRM for the weapon you really want. His thumb then comes down again on the pickle button. The missile goes... Whoosh, 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 whoosh. And it's like, dude, I mean, we never saw the missile. We were not threatened by the missile. So the stories that might say... You know, well, you know, he almost shot lead. He did not almost shot lead, shoot lead, because he was wildly out of position, <laughs> and lead was nowhere near being threatened. We were just shocked and appalled. And so we fly back, and you know, the F-15E lands short of sidewinder, and the ground crew sees immediately short of sidewinder, and they're going, "Yes, you know, touchdown!" You know, thumbs up everywhere, and the crew's going. Nope. Nope. So anyway, that kind of thing just happens. But it's not like weird Viper hotels where you accidentally strafe a school because you have one button doing multiple things. You're laughing at me. This is a real event that happened. Yes. It's training sortie in New Jersey where an F-16 puts a bunch of 20 millimeters into a school on a Saturday morning um, because... As much as I would like to blame a Viper guy, it's simple bad HOTAS. You have your trigger switch being done for multiple functions in the same mode. Uh, And so the guy was trying to fire the laser, and it was just one switch out of position. Um, Wow. Yeah, you look it up. F-16, Strafe School, Air National Guard, uh, and you can find the mishap report.
0: Wow. So so in other modes, uh, squeezing the trigger will fire the laser?
1: That was my understanding of the mechanization. Wow,
0: yeah, because it's a um, two-stage trigger, isn't it? In the S16, so maybe the first stage is is it fires off the laser or something. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it could be wow. like that, uh, but I, uh, you know, I'd have to look it up again. So many triggers are two-stage triggers. The F4 trigger was two-stage trigger because the half detent actually turned the camera on, hmm. um, and then full detent did uh, whatever it was you intended to do.
0: So what happened to Rock then? Uh, because
1: Oh, we grounded him for a couple days. We put him back in the line.
0: No call sign change?
1: No, no, no call sign change. Um, and it's not like Rock was a bad pilot. Um, You know, I I actually, I mean, he ended up on probation back at Lakenheath for a spatial disorientation event that the backseater Rich Piercy saved. He was spatially disoriented over the North Sea, and he called it out, and Rich Piercy recovered the aircraft. Spatial D can happen to anybody. That's not a, you know, that's good pilot, bad pilot doesn't freaking matter. You know, spatial D is one of those things. And he, they recognize, the crew recognized it early enough, a huge advantage of a two-seater over a single-seater. Uh, Rich Pierce, is a superlative EWO, F4G into F15E. Uh, and when he realizes Rock is spatially disoriented, pulls his nose out of the radar, rolls wings level, recovers the airplane. So I end up flying with him, you know, on a... Uh, like a, so this probationary thing, as if spatial D didn't happen to other people, and I came after a couple of sorties. And said he's fine. You know, there's there's no m- tactical misjudgment here. There's no. Um, his skills are fine. He's a wingman, and his skill set is appropriate to a wingman with his number of hours. Um. So anyway, you sat him down for a little while, and you put him back in the line. No big deal. But you know, this was to make sure the story is really told. On what really happened and while there was definitely buffoonery involved it was not hazardous gross upside down rotating prismatic buffoonery
0: upside down rotating prismatic yeah why do i feel like that's a reference to something
1: well so it's not so uh, one of the things that crept into the vernacular vernacular in the 90s was when you're talking about when you have complete situational awareness It is rotating prismatic essay. So if you're going to have that, you have to then have its opposite condition, and this is a star baby thing, this is not a strike eagle thing, of upside down rotating prismatic buffoonery. That's the opposite of total essay.
0: Greg House was talking on the Discord channel about some kind of pie reference, reference to something. Did you see that? I'm going to to cut this out. I'm going to cut this out because I don't know what I'm talking about. I just, I wondered if you'd seen it.
1: (laughs) No, when you say pie to me, I think either 3.141592654, my my daughter can actually do the first hundred digits of pie. (gasps) Really? Yeah. Or I think, Ooh, yum. I'll take mine with whipped cream.
0: (laughs) Maybe, maybe I'll leave this in. Who knows? (laughs) I think, yes, he said something about stradian pie or something like that. Obviously it Whatever it is, it amounts to 360, I guess. 360, I'd imagine, whatever it is. Serenium right, he was Pi talking something, about
1: something something the, something. the system on the F-35 that gives you a, an all-around view. Yeah, EOTs or whatever it is. Um. Yeah, yes. and yeah. so it was just an engineer speak of saying yeah. something in a manner that the rest of us will not understand. It's like engineer code. You know, the kind of thing they learned in an engineering mechanics class or... You know, when they were not doing something cool like building an egg cage out of toothpicks and dropping it <laughs> off the second story to see if they can keep an egg from breaking. So that's the cool aspect of engineering. That's like one half of one percent of your time.
0: I think he's a computer engineer, so I don't think he ever did any of that cool stuff. I think he's well, maybe done... it was a
1: virtual egg. You know, physics engines. Physics yeah. engines are a thing. Yeah. yeah. If they're well, they might not have been when he went through school. So if computer science or computer engineering majors do not do virtual egg drops off of two-story buildings, they should
0: well i'll leave this in and uh first of all say hi to him hi greg and if uh if you do end up watching this greg answer on the discord channel if anybody out there is curious to know what the answer to that question is come to us on the, on the discord channel so okay let's move on then to to other matters that are, are perhaps a bit more serious um yeah i'll i'll let you go with 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 the flow the way you want to go
1: this is the most screwed up thing that I saw in Allied Force, which was a long list of screwed up things. May fifth, nineteen ninety nine. I'm in Day Lines. I'm the mission commander. Call sign is Foil One One. Wardog Henderson is in the front seat. Wardog's our squadron commander and another great combat pilot. Um, who also never, you know, we never mixed the squadron commander mission commander thing. He was. When he was a mission commander, he was the mission commander. When I was the mission commander and I was flying with a War Dog, I was the mission commander. The fact that he was a squadron commander meant that actually I had an older and wiser cranium in the front seat, but he did not mess with um, my missions. So normally when you show up in the morning for a combat sortie or when you show up for a combat sortie, you air to ground, you have a target package. And the target package typically consists of the description of your target, the coordinates of your aim points, a couple images of the target, both close-up and distant, so you can see the things that are around it that help you find it, and a couple of charts that lead you into it. Not today. What we have is we have a target package consisting of one red, squarish object. It wasn't quite a perfect square, on a 1 to 1 million chart. Now, the 1 to 1 million chart is a, a joint operation graphic it's the kind of thing that airliners use to fly tacans and the great lakes it is not a tactically useful chart the tactically useful charts don't start until uh 1 to 500,000 and it doesn't even show all the towns i mean it's a town designed for high altitude jet or a map designed for high altitude jet route flight so that's problem number 1 that's a crappy target packet problem number 2 is that we've got a load of CBU-87 and we are cleared to drop CBU-87 medium altitude and we're cleared to drop through the weather. We are never cleared to drop CBU-87 through the weather. Now as a refresher for the audience, CBU-87 is a cluster bomb. Um, It is a Su 20 canister that opens up and has about 198, I think. Um, It has a whole bunch of blue 97Bs, which is for Americans, this is a malt liquor can. Okay, For everybody else in the universe, this is a monster energy drink can. Um, Same size, it's got a little uh, combination balloon and parachute that pops out of the back. um, And it has an explosive charge. It's designed to land on top of a tank and fire uh, a copper slug. It's a high-explosive anti-tank warhead. If it lands on a hard target, it works that way. If it lands on a soft target, it initiates as a traditional explosive can, and it has what's called a zirconium ring around it, which is a zirconium is a flammable metal, which puts flaming flaming fragments in all directions. So it's, in theory, if you could actually hit anything with one of these, it's good against hard-ish and soft targets. So why on earth are you going to drop a CBU-87 from medium altitude where the winds are going to send it all over the place and it's going to function and you can't really control where it's going to land and you're going to spread, you know, all these canisters of doom. And so I immediately smell a rat and I call our representative at the CAOC, who is a relatively young captain and actually, you know, a, 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 a pretty good captain. Um, pilot. And I, in retrospect, I probably miscommunicated my intent. What I wanted him to do was say, dude, this tasking is screwed up. I need you to get a general officer to sign off on this because it's not right. What I got back was, you know, I said, what I actually asked was who approved this strike? And so KAOK rep goes and says, General Short's signature is on the front of the air tasking order. So he answered the question that I asked and not the question that I meant to ask, which was, what the fuck? So now I've kind of got confirmation that the tasking and it's still not right. And I almost scrubbed the mission right there. And what Wardog suggests, because again, older and wiser cranium in the front seat, he says, why don't we go take a look? We can always not drop the munitions or drop them someplace else. And I say... That is a reasonable compromise. So we're going to plan a takeoff. And uh, the strike package is us, foil one one, 4 ship of Strike Eagles, a second four ship of Strike Eagles led by Stodd. He's the flight lead. And then a four ship of Turkish Vipers that because of the bad secure telephone lines at the time, we never really had good coordination with the Turks. Um, so I had to basically send a message to the Turks and hope that they listened because I that we couldn't logically close that feedback loop before the strike. And I said, plan a dump target, find an area inside your red, uh, your red square. And then we start going and taking another look and things get worse. So as we pull up. Our early imagery, the flight planning system, we had access to Falcon View at the time. Falcon is relatively new. I pull it up and I zoom in on the coordinates in the center of the red box. And what's in the center of the red box? A village. It's a village. That's what whoever gave us our target package is trying to conceal with the chart, the fact that there's a village in our target area. And I don't remember what the other flight's target was, but I suspect it was the same thing. So we pick a corner inside the drop container that has nothing in it but trees and i say to everybody we have you will positively identify a military target or you will not drop in the square uh you are cleared at any time to dump your weapons on the dump point that was a mistake on my part because i didn't understand at the time how many duds we were going to leave behind and what the threat was going to be to the civilian population afterwards. I thought dumping it in the trees would you know, shatter a bunch of trees. And it would be relatively harmless. It was wet, so I wasn't worried about fire. Um, it might have been that the runway was wet, and bringing back CBU wasn't an option. They By now, they the Vipers had dropped a whole bunch of them in the Adriatic, and uh, Fisher were getting pissed because they were dragging up CBU cans, and they were not happy about that. Uh, so Or it might have been that I was trying to actually accomplish the tasking without accomplishing the tasking. So I say, look, we dropped in the red square. That I think is most likely because that's kind of what I remember in the back of my brain is we were going to accomplish the task as written, but not as intended because as intended was wrong. And so I issue my instructions and, you know, Wardog is is riding along with me and, and I get the pushback from Stodd, the other four-ship flight lead. We're arguing back and forth and I talk about the uncertainties and I talk about the village. And he says, yeah, but I still don't understand why we're doing it this way. And I look at him and I put my finger in his chest and I say, and he's bigger than I am, because I'm the mission commander and you're not. And all my other practical arguments, which had no effect on it, where I'm the mission commander, you're not, it's like, okay, done, no further argument. That's flight discipline, by the way. And when I point out that the squadrons at Lake and Heath were well-disciplined, good squadrons, this is another example of what I mean. Because if you look at episode four, you know I've given you a couple examples of low quality flight discipline, or none at all. So we take off, I'm not happy about this. War Dog's not happy about this. Nobody is happy about this. And as we're approaching the target area, War Dog kicks out three and four to about an eight mile trail. So they are one minute behind us. Um, In the possibility that maybe we can find something and give them a heads up, but so that we don't have the whole four ship coming in heavy and having to just skip off and circle around again. So we set our formation up. So we've got some options and I'm coming in and I'm on the pod. And what's the first thing? It's broken cloud. What do I break out? two Serbian Orthodox churches. That's what's in the target area. Okay, this is definitely a village. There is no chance that we are going to positively ID a military target, even if there had been, you know, there could have been troops, tanks scattered around the village, but with no data from the KAOK, we're not letting the KAOK direct the bombs. Um, they would have been ineffective against that kind of target set unless we had a specific aim point anyway. You know, we would not have dropped CBU-87 on a tank in a village because that was irresponsible. Although if I had a GBU-12 and I needed to hit a tank, you know, I might have hit a tank in a village. Um, and that's what we get. We get churches. It's like, bang, I call it off. As soon as I spot the churches, I make it clear on the radio, weapons hold. You are not to drop. And we circle back around and we call up the alternate dump target and we end up dropping 24 cans of CBU. So roughly 4,800 little beer cans of death that we leave behind and then we fly home. I'm kind of pissed. Um, get back down. Stodd lands, comes up to me afterwards. I said, hey, what luck? He says, dude, you were right. All we saw in the target area was a POV and a busload of nuns. And so POV is personally owned vehicle. A busload of nuns is our standard phrase for something you don't want to hit, and it's a pretty black-white situation that you don't want to hit it. And so that was it. I expected to be sent home. I thought that was going to be my last combat sortie. You know, I was the mission command. I essentially basically said, don't hit the target. It was my responsibility. I expected to go home. I never heard a word. But the follow-on is equally tragic because that same target was tasked for the night go. And the pilot who got it, uh, we, I tried to leave a note because we had crew rest and crew duty limits, you know, so I got out of the squadron, we didn't have an overlap, I couldn't face to face brief. So I left a note saying, keep a close idea on your target, because we got set up for failure and the target was a village. And the pilot on the evening go, got some of that warning, but his response was different. His response was he wrote a memo for record protesting it and executed it anyway. Um, And that pilot, uh, I'd ask him about it, but he is no longer with us. Um, And so I can't. But I know that the pilot in question uh, regretted that to the end of his days. um, Because the one really good, very highly combat experienced guy who I flew with on multiple occasions. And he said, you know, the part of this job I hate the most is just killing people. Um, So that was kind of the wrap up and years later and not too many years later, I was at a meeting with general short and I was a major and I confronted general short. I said, what's the deal? You know, we got a task. And his answer was that he had intended to, and as far as he was concerned, he had banned CBU 87 use by the time we got to may. And I told him, well, that wasn't true because we were tasked for it. And he didn't, he claimed no knowledge whatsoever of the event or the tasking. And I have no reason to disbelieve him. Um, but I have no correlation either, you know, so it's all right. Um, uh, that's, you know, your story, uh, my story sees it from the other end. I don't have your picture, but it was wrong. And, you know, I had another friend flying buddy from weasels who was in the in Stuttgart in the headquarters. And he suggested that, that there was some deliberate targeting that went on, uh, that the Serbs needed to be taught a lesson was the phrase that was used by senior leadership at NATO. And how that gets translated down is a question. So there's a whole lot I don't know about the tasking, uh, but I do know the tasking happened. I know, you know what it happened against. Um, I know that we did not fully execute, although we met the letter of the law and so I'm going to argue that that was my best mission in Allied Force, not because of what I hit, but because of what I didn't hit. And I tell the young guys that, you know, when they're, they're counting up their combat missions and they've hit this many targets and they've exploded these many things, I say, when you're old, when you're young and you're high speed, low drag, targets that you hit are the things that matter to you the most. When you get old, low speed and high drag... What's going to matter to you are the targets that you didn't hit, the people that you didn't kill, and that not accidentally, but for entirely good reasons. Because you waited for confirmation if you're one of the special ops guys, or you just didn't feel right, that target didn't look right, the weapons combination wasn't right. That's what you're going to remember in your later days, and that's what's going to be important to you, and that's what's going to let you sleep at night. So there we go. Uh, Terrible tasking. Um, appropriate response. I'm still quite pleased with myself. Uh, and when I went on to fly combat sorties.
0: So the, the pilot that you referenced in the follow on night mission, who drops on the target. Um, can you say anything more about um, the effect that that might've had on him? Cause you said he had said he didn't like killing people as part of, um, well, I think it you was know, more
1: on him. And it's one of the questions I'd like to ask because um you know, he was he was killed in an aircraft accident um, that is unresolved as to the cause. There was nothing wrong with the airplane. He's a really good pilot. But other observers had said that he wasn't in a condition to fly emotionally. So I'm drawing, I'm connecting dots that might not need to be connected. Um, but I don't feel as if I'm misconnecting the dots. And I, I know that at the time, that kind of thing wore at him because he told me it wore at him.
0: How did you feel about killing people? I mean, you know, combatants um, or collaterally. Uh, what what was your emotional and uh, spiritual or psychological in response to that?
1: Um, it was so the Sam kill was initially muted because I hadn't thought it through. Right. And so. When I was, it was actually, I was back in Lake, Lake and Heath after the, the Sam kill in Northern Iraq. And, you know, the guys up in the tower, I'm pulling soft, supervisor of flying, I'm up in the tower, the air traffic control guys, you know, they know about the event because it was broadcast over the base, you know. And one of the guys says half jokingly, you know, as I'm talking about the event, he goes, so how's it feel to kill a man? Like we're on a Western. And it's like, oh, yeah okay, well, you know, that was three dudes. Wasn't my bomb, actually, because it was my bomb that hit the control van. Doesn't freaking matter, right? Uh, lead Wizzo, responsible for all the weapons that that flight drops. And uh, that always stuck through me. I mean, my first drop in Allied Force was into a command and control bunker. Um, You know, I never counted targets. And if you're... You know, a military, if you're part of a military target and you end up getting turned into pink mist by one of my bombs, that's the way it goes. I mean, that's the nature of warfare. If it's collateral damage, I took every possible measure to try and avoid collateral damage. And so that doesn't weigh on my conscience at all because I never made a mistake or had a weapons failure that resulted in um, anybody reporting major collateral damage so the serbs neither the serbs nor the iraqis ever claimed collateral for any weapon that i dropped or strike that i led um so that kind of gets me out of that moral quandary right i don't have to relive anything you know there are things i wish had happened differently i wish sword flight had been cleared to go take a look at those ground attack aircraft um you know i so, but I, I just don't have that on my conscience. So I don't lose any sleep over it. When I lose sleep, it's because of things that were avoidable and were stupid and still not necessarily under my control. Um, but like a guy riding it in uh, with a late ejection decision. So yeah, not not something I particularly worried about. Um but that varies and it, you know, it could vary. You make one error and you're your weapon goes into a marketplace. Yeah, How do you feel about it? I don't know. I'd feel crappy. Hmm. But that is also part of the nature of warfare is bad things happen to people who were just going about their day. And so with precision munitions, and I, I Paco Benitez and I wrote an article about this. Um, You might get the impression that precision turns warfare into a much cleaner operation than it actually does it's dirty nasty violent brutal mode of human interaction and to make that worse oh go ahead steve
0: no 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 carry on
1: i was gonna just use that as a segue into our next clip but if you have yeah, any more questions
0: I-, I wanted to talk to you about the ato side of things but but i think continue with this theme because this is um Yeah, quite compelling
1: Okay, so in the unfortunate event category, we're going to talk about an attack on a railroad bridge that went bad in Allied Force. And it's, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, it's like Gertelika. And towns with too few consonants in the name definitely give me a problem. I remember prior to Allied Force, it was actually, I think, during Deny Flight, reading an Onion article where it said that the Americans had coordinated an emergency airlift of vowels into the former Yugoslavian Republic and I've never forgotten that because today they need that emergency airlift of of vowels um it's not as confusing as Wales, where everything is 24 syllables long and they think w is a vowel it's not <laughs> um, so but you know the balkans could definitely use an emergency airlift of vowels so um This is train bridge and a couple of AGM-130 shots, and I'm going to walk you through the video. And what happened was, the bottom line of what happened is that one day a train is going along in the middle of a fight and it's not bothering anybody, and as it crosses a bridge, it gets hit by a 2,000-pound bomb with an AGM-130 wrapped around it. And then several minutes later the burning wreckage of the train gets hit by a second AGM-130. That's what happened. Um, And that's pretty much indisputable. I'm going to talk about the why it happened. But the the first thing I'm going to say is that it certainly wasn't intentional because there is no way you could have put all the pieces together to manage that kind of timing. Having an airplane in the right place, having the train on time, I don't know whether it was on time or not, Um, having a missile launch from X number of miles away, fly the route, come to a bridge, catch a train. Um, That's like the negative equivalent of winning a lottery ticket. And it's unfortunate. You know, we remember the luckiest guy in Iraq that uh, General Schwarzkopf briefed. was a guy when the bridge dropped right behind him. Well, you know, in Allied Force, we had a case or two where the bridge dropped right in front of the guy. And this this is very much like that. It wasn't intentional. And you couldn't have put intentional together like that. Had it been like an armored VIP train uh, with a bunch of uh, leadership in it, it might have been a legitimate target. You still have had to consider it carefully, but this is not the place you'd have hit it or the weapon you'd have used to hit it. So we can dismiss that uh, entirely. The weapon itself, the AGM-130, is a datalink-guided weapon, and... and it's a 2,000-pound warhead, and that's that's big. It has a rocket motor underneath it. It has a seeker in the nose. It has a data link package, radio communications, and it's got some fairly big tail fins in the back. Not big enough, but fairly big. And it's an upgrade of the, the GBU-15, which was also a data link-guided bomb. So the way that data link works is so there is an uplink and a downlink. And it goes to a pod carried on the center line of the aircraft. This is Vietnam-era stuff from GBU-8 Hobo Systems. The uplink gives you the video picture from the seeker in the front of the bomb. The downlink gives you a control input from the right-hand controller um, that the, the WIZO is guiding it from. So there's this constant uplink-downlink, and you're essentially, this is a remote-controlled bomb in its simplest terms. This is GPS enhanced. The Seeker has some computer power behind it. Not much, but enough for it to actually be commanded to lock on. Um, And a normal target set. This was in in Allied Force. Bridges were part of its normal target set because it was the most accurate weapon we had. And with a uh, a circular error probable, combat CEP of maybe 18 inches. Wow. And we see that in bridge strikes. We see that where you put the weapon in the door of a control van for a Sam battery. We see it where you put it through the window of a barracks building. This is an extremely accurate weapon, but it is not an extremely maneuverable weapon. So what happens is the Wizzo is guiding it in is they pick the specific aim point and then they refine that aim point on the way in. But the aim point is only changing by single digit feet. And then you get down to you're changing your aim point maybe by single feet. Because the weapon does not have the control authority to make radical changes. So with that description in mind, I'm going to prepare to run through uh, the videos at normal speed with no commentary. Then we'll turn back around and I'll break it up. How's that sound? Yep. All right, we're going to run through this at its correct speed. Now, I'll say in advance that um, when this was released, it was sped up uh, at approximately three times speed was the released file. I have the original files that NATO released to the public, and this is derived from them, and I slowed them down to what is a pretty good approximation real time. So you're going to see two bikes, one after the other, in real time um, as the Wizos and pilots would have seen them. 12 April, 1999, and that's unusually dim. That's weapon one. And that's weapon two. We'll come back to these in a second. Now, how do I know what went on? You know, I wasn't in the flight. I'm not an AGM-130 guy, but I was in the weapon shop when the guys came in with their tapes. And and they said, we need to review these tapes because something did not go right. And we've got a really bad feeling about this one. And so I was there at the first run through of the tapes, okay, with the crews that made the shots and the oh this is not good kind of moment um there because when we rerun it we're seeing what actually happened that's not the way the jet works or the human eye works um in real time in a combat situation so it's no exaggeration to say the guys didn't understand what had happened until the tape review this is not unusual um Uh, you know, I thought for one of my bombs that I mentioned earlier, um, I thought that I had broached a bomb, skipped it off the front of the rock face because I had mistaken flaming debris trailing smoke for one of my bombs. It wasn't, um, I had a guy report that, uh, his bombs had dropped short and that was his visual, uh, representation. It was the second night of the or the bombs did drop short but when i saw somebody else's tape i would have sworn that those bombs were on target it's only when i saw the shooter's tape that it became clear they dropped short so you know it your perceptions can fool you on a second by second basis and your eyes can fool you all right let's go back So what the New York Times reported after the strike was that the tapes had eventually been had been sped up three times. Um, there were various claims it was done for BDA. It was a an artifact of an early. We were only we were brand new to digitizing combat tapes. Could have been a mistake. I've never seen a normal speed. So what I took is because I have an Apple. Um, as I took this down, my throat I slowed it down by a factor of three to get you to approximate real time. It is not precise because I have no time reference on the screen to count the seconds down for me. So it could easily be plus or minus 15%. But it, eyeballing it, it's pretty darn close. And the plus or minus 15%, as it turns out, doesn't matter. So what you see in this screen badly is the seeker is in uh, a wider field of view. You know, You've got this train track going from the bottom left to the upper right, And you have this tracking box around it. And the crosshairs, the open crosshairs are where the center of the centroid of the seeker is. And that's where everything happens. If the wizzo makes a lock on, it's all based on that. And the cross is the last lock on position. You can barely see a bridge in this video. So we're going to run it forward. Just before you
0: do that, Starbaby, what's the magnification factor?
1: I actually have no idea. Um, what the magnification is. I will tell you that it is viewed on a five-inch monochrome green screen that sits in front of the wizzo's face. And so it's not, this, this is not high-resolution stuff. This is things happening in real time on a tiny screen on a jet that's moving uh, at a significant clip uh, in a very stressful environment because you cannot call these bombs back. You know, they're going to land somewhere near your target area. So this is actually a very high-pressure kind of shot, is the Wizzo has to find the target pick the aim point, designate the target and hit the target in a, in a time span that is measured in seconds. Uh, and you know, they do it right. The vast majority of the time. So the target is a bridge. You're going to do a bridge abutment. Now let's tell about your eyes. We're sitting back at the laptop and I can kind of get this whole thing in my view, this whole image, but in reality, I'm focusing on what's inside the solid square that's where my visual acuity is aimed that's where my attention is aimed that's why when you're looking at targeting pod video you can always tell what the operator is thinking about because you can they're thinking about what's around immediately around the crosshairs so from a perspective of for the guy guiding the weapon anything outside that solid square might as well be black because it's not entering entering their visual scan the other crew who is not guiding the weapon is still watching the data link. And so they have a chance of seeing things in the on the larger picture, but that's spotty. They can get focused on what's inside the box too, inside the container. Sorry, Oops, that's a dollar. So here we are. I'm, We're not I'm very really far quickly, out.
0: Just, yeah. just really quickly, last interruption then. Uh, just to be clear, you've said that once it's gone, it's gone. It's going to land somewhere. So it, it is armed once that rocket booster falls off of it, and there's no way for them to, to, even if they did see something they didn't like, there'd be no way for them to dud the bomb.
1: It is armed once it is released from the airplane. If you dump a bomb, you dump it high order. It's going to go off. There is no disarm feature. Good uh, uh, clarification. So let's run it in at what I think is normal speed. The train's actually on the left side of the scope. You can see it creeping in. Here it is. Nobody's going to see that. Um, And, you know, people who are watching this on YouTube, run it back and see if you can see it um, and when it appears. Now the Wizzo is getting definition on the bridge. What he's looking for is the bridge pier in the middle of the river. So with the cross, he's designated on the bridge. And that's the smart thing to do in case he loses data link. The weapon's still going to try and hit that point seeker is still going to try and go it. So what he's doing is making a series of redesignations as you get closer. We'll run a little bit more. Well, that looks like a train, but it's outside the box, and the wizzo's looking for this pier. And we'll get a little closer. That's the reasonable point at which the train is inside the container. Um, But the pier's already been chosen. What's important to understand with this image is that just because the train is inside the container does not mean that the Wizzo's eyeballs and brain are doing pattern recognition to figure out what just happened to his picture. Because that's how your vision works, is you're doing pattern recognition. And anybody that's ever hunted deer can tell you you can be looking right at a deer and not see it until it flicks its tail and suddenly your brain takes exactly the same image and assembles it into a recognizable pattern, and now you see deer. You see this with optical illusion tricks all the time. It's pattern recognition. But at this point, you're less than two seconds from bomb impact, and there is nothing the Wizzo can do to keep the bomb from hitting pretty much where the crosshairs are. Because the bomb, big bomb, lots of energy, relatively small wings, He can command full deflection on the fins and all that's going to happen is the bomb is going to slap into that part and not hit it nose on because that's enough time to change the attitude of the bomb, namely where it's pointing, but not enough to change its vector, which is where it's landing. So at this point, we're saying, well, there's a train right there. There's nothing the Wizzo can do about it. That bomb is going to hit pretty close to those crosshairs and it's gonna go off high order um and bang that's not a lot of whole whole lot of time so if i just run the end through in real time maybe recognition there's no time and because the video comes off the wizzo does not know at the time what has happened none of the crew realize um what has happened now what i don't know is i don't know whether they radar imaged the bridge to see if they had dropped it um i rather think they did because they felt that they hadn't dropped the bridge so we're now going to move to section two and the second shot and this is what you do if you don't think you've killed your target is you take a second shot in the case of a bridge you probably take two shots anyway because you want to hit the bridge in the pier and then you want to hit the bridge at the abutments at either end to make it harder to reconstruct. It's not about just dropping the bridge, it's about cutting the crossing. And so again, we're going to see, and right now, smoke and fire. That's going to make even the bridge hard to resolve. So this second shot, this guy is having a harder time even finding the bridge. So we'll sail on in, I don't see a bridge. Um, you know, So where the bridge should be, and he's kind of designating where the bridge should be. And you see him changing from the middle pier to the abutment at the far end. He knows there's flame. He knows there's there's smoke. This is about the first point um, where you're going to see and say, Oh, yeah, that's definitely a bridge. And it's definitely still intact. And it, you know, yes, there's fire. What's the fire from? Now. You've got a reasonable picture that you've got a train and you have a fire. And obviously the train was hit actually some t- distance to the left of this and kept moving. Um, And now you've got fire on the shoreline where the weapon did not go. So the second shot is landing in a different place because it's targeting a different element of the bridge. And up until this point, yes something is burning but you have no idea why pick the aim point weapon guides in and you have no time to correct that Hmm. and that's the stop share that's the bridge issue you know it is unfortunate and i know the guys feel bad about it i felt bad about it at the time but even when they came back to the weapon shop, they had a suspicion of what had gone wrong, but the suspicion that they'd hit something on the bridge didn't come until the end of the second shot. Um, Well, when the second shot got to the bridge and they knew something was on fire, they knew what they'd hit. They didn't have any idea what they'd hit um, until the debris. You know, they had a nasty suspicion... Um, by the time of the second weapon but when you shoot the second weapon again it's it's gone someplace and by the time you get to that kind of resolution you can't change the vector so it was going to hit in those two places uh, and it sucks for everybody on the train and it sucks for the crews and you know again people are going to think i'm a horrible person for saying that the mission failed they didn't drop the bridge uh and so the objective was not complete so it's a loser of a mission all around. So that's was, kind of my my downer for the day. What what else can I answer?
0: Well, what was the uh, the reaction in the squadron? I mean, I I went back and I had a look at the incident that's been written up on Wikipedia, which is not necessarily the source you would want to cite, but it's good enough in most situations. I think uh, twenty five or so people died, and I think NATO Supreme Commander, I think it was clark wesley clark i can't clark, remember yep. yeah had said you know was up front and just said look we're sorry uh, we didn't it, it wasn't intentional we don't uh, we don't like it and so on but within the squadron um what what sort of reaction was there? did you have to rally around those guys i mean were they able to compartmentalize that and just get on with the job for the next few weeks or um you know how how, how was the response
1: we all understood by that time in the war it was a cost of doing business by that time, we'd seen weapons failures where crews hadn't made mistakes um, that had caused uh, unintentional damage that we didn't want. We'd seen bombs do things we didn't expect them to do, um, you know, due to smoke, dust, and haze. Uh, we'd seen guys just flat out screw the pooch and hit the wrong target. Um, that was expected, and by now, it was routine. Um because it's not you know people say surgical precision all those great terms it's not surgical and precision only gets you so far Mm. so i mean these were very precise bombs they went exactly where they were aimed um and that didn't save the people on the train um because the, the wrong place wrong time uh very unfortunate so you know, we just moved on with the rest of the trying to make this thing work so that we get to our ultimate goal, which was to stop the Serbs from deliberately slaughtering Kosovar Albanians. You know, we never lost sight of while we were there. And yes, we were frustrated. And yes, we were angry. And yes, we talked about uh, bombing suspected truck parks in the jungle. But at the tactical level, nobody ever lost sight of, you know, what you're actually trying to achieve on a campaign scale, even when our leadership had no idea how to achieve that.
0: You said you weren't an AGM 130 guy, and, and you, you've talked about that in a previous episode about how you know certain guys were trained up for that particular skill set, and you've just explained why that would be the case. Um, but do you know whether or not the... So again, you, you may end up having to give an answer that's quite cold-sounding, but do you know whether or not that mission resulted in changes in the way that the weapon was employed or the way that you were going to go and hit a small bridge like that um, and, and was there any consideration given to perhaps saying well you know you check train timetables or you, you get the intel guys to say is there likely to be a train crossing a, a bridge at any given point in time I mean you know sort of cars yeah, so and nothing... trucks you can't but
1: here's my cold answer that's not the shooter's problem okay that is the chaos problem okay our problem is to get the weapon on target on time um and so there were no tactical changes that i'm aware of in the squadron because there didn't need to be you know as a weapons employment exercise that worked exactly as intended as a planning exercise you know the more i as i think back on it i i think it was it was a poor tasking option um because i mean this was next to kosovo it was not in a heavily defended area. It was probably an AGM-130 secondary target. Whereas if you didn't have a time-sensitive target, you hit a secondary target that needed to be hit. Um, but we normally did a lot of a lot of the AGM-130 bridges attacks. Like, for example, the ones in Novi Sad on what we call the McDonald's Bridge and what they call the Freedom Bridge. So it's got this big double arch. So we called it the McDonald's Bridge because we're Americans, right? And And we're stupid that way. And um, those strikes were done at night at like three o'clock in the morning to minimize traffic. So I would say that this was a planning area that required no adjustment on our part. But having said that, add to your bag of tricks, you know, the fact that you cannot trust the chaos um, to get this right all the time, uh, particularly when you're in a mad rush and you're scrambling for targets and trying to fill lines.
0: You've brought the chaos back into focus. Then, so have you really sat down? Well, you must have. But what what have you thought then when you look back at that, uh, the mission with the square box and the uh, lack of information, and the soundings from your friend from the F four G world who said that you know this was there to teach them a lesson? What what are your how do you how would you explain that? Do you think that? it's possible that a general officer was aware of this, or do you think that is somebody at uh, major grade, you know, Lieutenant Colonel, whatever, who's been given a package and told, insert this into the, into the ATO?
1: So I've seen both in other examples. So that's an impossible, that's an intention dot, and I can't connect it, Um, but I have seen both happen, right? I have seen generals command bad things, And colonels command bad things, you know, so senior officers, I've seen them deliberately do uh, issue orders to do something that was wrong. Um, That's possibly another story from Iraq. I have also seen also another story from Iraq. Generals go on a rant and their staff officers trying to put something together out of that rant and ending up issuing commands in the general's name that the general never intended. Um, and that the officer doing it was just trying to satisfy the boss. I've seen both of those things happen. There's no question in my mind because of the red box on a one to one million chart that that was a, de- a deliberate targeting of a civilian target and that they attempted to conceal that from the air crews executing the mission. OK, so that's not only bad targeting, you know, intentionally bad targeting. That's obstruction in lawyerly terms because they attempted to conceal something they knew was wrong uh in terms of uh the chaos on the train and the timing the chaos didn't know if if this was as i suspect a secondary target the chaos would not have known the timing and that becomes a thing where it's actually not their job to sort out and eliminate collateral damage it is their job to minimize it um in accordance with achieving the military mission right the the mission still has to be achieved it's still a war it's still destructive you can't make it pain and damage free and so in the case of the train that's not a chaos group there might have been ways to think of it through better but nobody made an error here um it just was an unfortunate confluence on the timing
0: Final question then, with regards to the the drop for the night uh, sortie that went out um, and and did drop on the village. Did you ever hear about that? Have you ever read anything? Because you know the the propaganda machine, and in this instance, it wouldn't be propaganda, but the propaganda machine um, works well and, and it works hard. And the train stroke bridge strike that you just showed was, um, you know, sort of lent on very heavily as a way of portraying nato as killing um innocent people and oppressing um uh people so did you ever hear about anything regarding the c no and talk? i
1: looked i i looked for it um unfortunately i don't have the coordinates i don't remember the coordinates of the actual target um but i looked for references on human rights watch reports afterwards to see if what had happened you know um uh, if somebody picked up on this, uh, the second flight, the night flight, reported that that there was fl- there were flames on the ground afterwards. But um, what did that mean? I I didn't see anything, and I've looked for it, but I haven't done the kind of looking when I was a captain in two thousand is not the same as me looking now. I'm much better at internet research, so I could easily have missed it. But yeah, I've been clueless for many many years.
0: Well, uh, it's a, a fairly somber note to end on. But, no, no, uh, no. So we're but... going to tell
1: a story. Thank goodness. We don't end on somber notes. It's not our go job. On. Go on, then. Okay, so me laugh. this is a lake and heat strike little thing, and we're going to go back in time and we're going to move out of the Balkans because I really should have worked this story in earlier. And we're going to talk about Dots, which is a cafe outside the gate in Insulik Air Base. So we routinely supported the northern no-fly zone out of Insulik. And this is a good deal. So while I was at, uh, at Lakenheath, from 96 to 99, we didn't go to Saudi Arabia. That was for those poor losers at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. As if their life isn't bad enough already because they're permanently stationed at Seymour Johnson, which is really a swamp surrounded by pig farms and racists. And... They go to Saudi Arabia, which is dry land surrounded by oil wells and racists. And so, and religious fanatics, let's not forget that, uh, that component. So we got the good deals. They got the bad deals. And do I feel bad about that? To this day, do I feel bad about that? No. And so... We're regularly in and out of Insulik. Insulik is great. You can get your shopping done. You can buy Persian carpets. Um, you can buy things made out of brass, stuff made out of cedar, jewelry. I mean, the jewelry guys are great. You know, uh, you want you want earrings for your spousal unit shaped like an F four. They can do them. Okay, there done that. It's kind of in retrospect, it's kind of a narcissistic Christmas present, but that never really would have occurred to me at, at the time. And so Moose is a cafe at the end of what we call the alley. And you would go out into the alley and it's like a a semi dirt, semi asphalt road. You cross the railroad tracks, you know, the farther away you get actually the higher rent district you get you get into. Um, Don't get the impression this is a high rent district. Uh, And Moose Cafe was at the far end of the block before you got to the highway. And it was pretty good. And it was, uh, you know, it was a nicely constructed building. Unusually for Turkey, there was a lot of wood in it. It was a wood beam construction. Uh, They use a lot of concrete. And if you look up in the rafters, you would see socks. There are socks with writing on them hanging from the rafters. Well, why are there socks? Because there was this thing. And it was a challenge. It was the toothpick challenge at Muzdats in which, you had to have a new guy, right? Definitely have to have the squadron brings a new guy along and they're going to set you up on the challenge. And the way the challenge is set up is it's a coordination challenge. This is blindfolded, one-footed coordination <laughs> because you can't you know, challenge a fighter pilot this way and not have the challenge accepted, right? So what they're going to do is they're going to blindfold you and they'll put a cutting block on the table in front of you and give you this big-ass cleaver this kind of curved cleaver that looks like it was used against crusaders in the 14th crusade. Okay. And they will put a toothpick on the chopping block and they will tell you to smack the toothpick. And so you do a dry run where you can see the toothpick. And now you're going through various stages. So first you're blindfolded you swing on the toothpick and you get the toothpick. And then um, they've actually had you take your shoes off and they have you stand on one foot And slice the toothpick. Now, they're going to take your other foot and put your other foot in a pan of cold water. Um, This is why you have to have your shoes and socks off. So one foot, two feet, temperature differential, do you still have the coordination? Of course you do, because temperature differential in your feet does squat to affect your balance. But it's plausible at the time, particularly perhaps after a couple of beers. And you slice the thing, and everybody cheers. And you go to put your socks back on. <laughs> well, so you've been blindfolded. You as the victim had been blindfolded. And one of those times where everybody was cheering you for slicing the toothpick, what had happened is the staff and your buddies had taken your sock out of your shoe and stretched the sock across the cutting board. And the guy had gone thwack, thwack, and cut the sock into a couple pieces, and you stuffed the sock back into the boot. And then you wait, and they bring you a towel so you can draw off your foot, and then you go to put on your sock, and it's one of two things. It's either half the sock it used to be, or it's the tube part of tube sock. So we get to, and i escaped i did not learn this in the f4g this wasn't something that we did probably because the mush dots was not one of our hangouts um but the strike Eagle guys and i escaped as a relatively newcomer to the squadron because they thought i was an old guy and i knew about this so the first time i see it i'm seeing it happen to somebody else and i'm i've skated right because guys assumed and one of the victim of the day is rad okay nick radovich who's like the fighter pilot surfer dude. I don't even know if he's from California, but if you could have a mental picture of a a guy that looks and acts and, you know, really super laid back, you know, he's, he's not a bad pilot. He's just really laid back about it. And, and he's got kind of what you imagine is a California surfer dude accent and way of talking. and, And so we set, we set Rad up for this whole thing. And we go through the process, and we're not paying close attention. He's swacking the toothpicks. We go to get his sock. Rad doesn't wear socks (laughs) because he's a California surfer dude. And so now we're there with a conundrum, right? It would be mean to put his shoe up there (laughs) because that would be just wrong. So what have we got? Well, the best we can do is wearing boat shoes with no socks. So we've got the leather laces. So we managed to quickly, because there's only like three eye holes on either side, we quickly undo the laces, bang, put the laces down, he slices the laces, we reassemble it, and mission accomplished. Complete, utter, and total failure, though, because what you have to do is afterwards, a guy autographs his sock, puts the date down, and you nail it up to the rafter. We have General Jumper's socks up there in the rafters because it was pulled on him. So I've seen the sock thing done several times, but Rad's sock, Phantom sock event was a catastrophic failure in most respects because dude doesn't wear socks.
0: Who knew? I think you should have put the shoes on them.
1: Um, I think that would have been unnecessarily cruel. <laughs> um, Because now a guy's out 40 bucks. You know, he's walking home in the alley with with that's the kind of thing that F sixteen squadrons would do to <laughs> each other. You know, but if you're a class act, you're really not gonna do the guy's <laughs> shoes.
0: Do you know if it's still
1: there? Mushdats? Yeah. I, I don't know. We'd have to ask somebody that's been to in Insulic recently. Um I mean the food was really good. Um and I don't remember them ever poisoning anybody. Uh the only time I was poisoned in Turkey um was actually an on-base eating establishment. One of the things we used to order off base was tava. And I can't find a good tava in most Turkish restaurants because it's a southern Turkish thing. You take a ceramic bowl because nothing else can withstand it. You put meat and tomato sauce and generally put uh, have rice next to it. You put cheese on top and you stick this in an oven and you bake it. And so as a result, it gets so freaking hot that there's no food contamination possibility so if you're not certain about your food order a tava it doesn't matter how bad the food preparation was in the back room it's freaking hot nothing is surviving the oven uh and you come back out and for it to cool down you mix it with rice and it's really good and you can get beef tava chicken tava shrimp tava you know whatever else vegetable tava and they do all this in one short sentence with no breath in which every second word is tava and you're lucky <laughs> if you catch all the possible options i liked lamb tava um and sometimes you could combine them. You could do chicken and something else. But anyway, Tava. So ate a lot of Tava at uh, uh at Mushdots in a complete irrelevancy for anything about the F-15 and the Balkans. Tava, gotta love it, hard to find.
0: <laughs> well, it's a cheery note to end on.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's that's kind of the way I hope to end. And uh I think this wraps up my list of stories and you know videos. And we'll have to pick another corner of the world next time.
0: Yeah. Well, there's, there's still the Irregular Warfare, Light Attack, and we are definitely going to do an F4G. We've got the AMA. Basically, you're never going to go away. This is it's a, this is going to be in perpetuity.
1: Well, don't forget, we're going to do me interviewing Steve Dave. <laughs> oh, <How> are we? <laughs> uh, we are because, you know, so for the audience participation, it was a suggestion that I interview Steve. Of course, and the immediate problem with that is how do I do an interview when it's pretty clear I love to talk about myself? But I, you know, I, I have to exercise a little bit of discipline. And Steve says he doesn't have any good stories. And then what he immediately does to illustrate the fact that he has no good stories is he gives reference to three good stories. <laughs> and so, OK, yeah, we're on. I can do this. I can I can discipline myself, you know, uh uh, maybe I'll set up like a chess timer okay, or something right there, where when I speak, I have to hit it, and it only gives me ten seconds, and it goes bing, <laughs> and now it's Steve's time to talk. I mean, we can do something like that. We can, we can control it, but eventually there will be a Steve Davies interview. Maybe not tomorrow, you know, maybe not next month. But when he runs out of material, or you know, he people catches, yeah, he runs out of yeah. people. I'm trying to keep him from running out of people to interview. You are, yeah. I know a guy. <laughs> So there we are. That's another interview to add to the the pile of eventual Star Baby involved interviews.
0: Well, it's all to look forward to. Star Baby, thanks a lot. It's been a, a great series. Five episodes plus one that was merged in with the first one. It's, it's all good. So thank you so much for doing it. It's been wonderful listening to you. And I know from the feedback that everybody has appreciated you sharing the video, sharing your stories, sharing your honest um, assessment of how that particular air campaign was run and you, and your partner it's been good listening thank you
1: all right thanks it's been fun as always
0: thanks for tuning in to 10 True. i hope you enjoyed this episode feel free to subscribe and if you're on youtube hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode thanks and take care